Good morning. I'm Dave Selvig, and uh, this morning we're going to continue reading in Romans chapter 3. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible, Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. Romans 3, 27 through 31. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. Glad to be here with you all. Uh, this is our first Sunday doing uh, two services here for this fall. And uh, I feel like I just did this. And uh, there are some of you that were here during the first service as well. Those serving. Uh, the praise team, Dave Salvig, reading the passage for us. It's exciting to be here. This is kind of feels like fall kickoff for me. And... Uh, you know, I'm the son of a dry cleaner, and uh, what that meant for me growing up was I had a lot of free clothes to choose from because customers would regularly forget to pick up their clothes, and uh, the sign said 30 days, uh, after which it's, you know, mine, uh, <clears throat> but we actually, we waited for about six months, and, uh, and then I would go through all these, you know, Upper East Side in New York City, their yuppies shirts and suits and ties and things, and I'd pick out the ones that I liked, and this was one of the shirts that I picked out years ago, uh, and then I wore it all throughout college, and then I wore it to plant two churches, two covenant churches on a regular basis, and uh, I've waited to wear this shirt, and I have to wear it folded up because it's all frayed. It's, it's all coming apart. But this is my game shirt. It's game on. Falls here, two services, and uh, so here we go. You with me? Yes. All right. Uh, I want to talk about a topic today that is incredibly elusive to me. It's just tricky. And the way I mostly relate to it is by struggling about it. And it's the topic of faith. We just uh, sang this song, uh, the last song we sang. It's got some weird words in it. If you didn't grow up in church singing these kinds of words, and, you know, it just seems like Christians do weird things where they juxtapose words and ideas together, and then we get all pumped up about it. Like, for example... What, how does God lift us up on wings like eagles? That's weird. Do you understand that if you haven't been singing that for a while, that's weird? 
or you wait upon the Lord. Like, your coworker says, hey, man, did you decide to uh, buy that house yet? Say, you know, I'm waiting upon the Lord. What does that mean? It's called Christianese. It's just another language altogether. And, and those of us in the church, we're sort of this part of this insular club, and we know how to understand each other. But for those outside of it, that's awfully strange. I know there are some of you here who uh, label yourself a Christian and you're used to church and, you know, Christianese and churchanese or whatever we speak here. But for some of you, this is just all new. And we appreciate that that can sound awfully foreign and strange. And uh, I don't know about you, but I kind of am aware of the fact that Christians uh, assume this topic of faith. We assume that this invisible being that we call God and the Son of God, which we call Jesus, is real. And we relate to them. We talk to them. We wait upon them. And they do things to us like lift us up. Strange. Right? Um, I want to sort of get your minds engaged right from the beginning here. And so I have a list of many, many questions here. But I want you to actually interact with these questions. Okay, develop answers in your minds and hold it there. And it'll come into play as we go through the sermon together. Here's the first question. What is faith? Would you define it in your mind? What is it? Second question. What is your experience of association with the practice of or with the people of faith. Third, how do you feel about faith? What feelings are evoked in you? Next, what does the Bible say about faith? What are some verses or thoughts or concepts that come to your mind when you think about the topic of faith? And speaking of the Bible, what does God want from you with regard to faith? Is your God and if he requires faith from us? Next. And uh, this is by a show of hands. And uh, reminder, this is a safe place. You can go ahead and answer these questions honestly. Nobody will bite. How many of you believe 24-7 that God exists? Is this true? Okay, next. How many of you believe 24-7 that God is good? That God is powerful and that God is gracious? 24-7. All right? 
How many of you go back and forth about God's existence, nature, or relation to us? Right? Look around. I love the dynamic range in this room. I just love it. Okay? Here we go. There's this, this question can be asked two ways. How many of you don't believe that God exists? Any atheists in our midst? Okay, how about this way of asking it? How many of you live as if God doesn't exist? You're functional atheists. All right. You guys are way better. The first service, everybody raised their hands. It was, it was a very intimate moment. <clears throat> How many of you believe that God is personal and near? Okay. And lastly, how many of you believe that God has set the universe in motion, but really is not engaged, doesn't intervene on a daily basis in our daily affairs? That's what we would kind of call a deist or an agnostic, somebody who believes God exists, but he's kind of finished setting the world in motion. He's kind of waiting and watching, but not intervening too much. So I ask myself these questions, particularly this week, but I've been thinking about it for more than that. And uh, my conclusion at the end of working through some of these questions for myself personally is that faith is elusive, it's hard to define, and it's even harder for me to describe. And the picture that comes to my mind is the smoke ring. I see it. It's right there. But as soon as I reach for it, it's gone. Gone, baby, gone. Where did it go? So uh, my tendency in general when I'm preaching is to uh, overwhelm people with information and connections and all that good stuff. Um, And I try not to be that way, but my mind is sort of mad scientist in that way. It might be a little bit extra challenging today. It was for me as I try to work through this. But I did try to distill it down to some uh, few few essential uh, statements that I wanted to make about faith. I want to ask you up front to take extra care to track with me. A little disclaimer that this is not an exhaustive sermon about faith. There is more than... More about faith than I can speak in one sermon. Uh, Probably more than I can do in a series, more than I can do in a lifetime. Faith, I've been reminded of that it's a huge topic. It's just so pervasive in in so many ways that it's hard for me to just do three things. But I'm going to do three things about faith today. Okay? Three things are faith, God, and Jesus. Faith, God, Jesus. Ready? Let's go. Okay, the first thing. The fact of faith itself is evidence of another world. This is one of the most basic things that the Bible has to say about faith. That the fact that you have faith itself is evidence that there is another world beyond our visible, material world. 
It exists. It doesn't say it by implying it. It just comes out and says it here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It says this, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. And what the writer is saying there is this. Faith itself is like a material thing. It's, it's evidence that the things hoped for, that is the things that are invisible, exist. So faith is the substance of things hoped for, and it is the evidence of things not seen. You have to understand and appreciate what a crazy statement this is. What it's saying is the fact that you have longings in your heart, the fact that you have hopes beyond this life that you live, beyond this world that you can see and touch and smell and measure and perceive, experience, beyond all of that, you have hopes. You have dreams. You have desires. And the fact that you have these ideals and these hopes and dreams serves as evidence that the very world you hope for actually exists. I'm reminded of this every day because I have very little kids. Their lives are not messed up at all. They have no trauma in their life. They are living a great life. They really are. And yet they have all of these hopes and longings and dreams that I know as somebody who's 40 years old, it's not going to ever happen for them. It's just never going to happen. Those are just what we call dreams. But the fact that they have these dreams is evidence that there is this other world. Do you know anybody in your life, anybody at all, believer, unbeliever, acquaintance, friend, anybody that doesn't have hopes and dreams? I think every single person in the universe, in our history of humanity, has hopes and dreams. There's a universality to the presence of hope and faith. We all believe in something beyond what we can see. And the writer of Hebrews says that fact alone is evidence that that other world exists. So if you look at verse 27 to 31, the passage that Dave Selvig read for us, this is in part what Paul is trying to say here. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And right there what Paul is implying is this. That there's this physical world. And we can work this physical world. There's cause and effect. And I can see it. I can control it. I can choose to do things. It's very tangible, material, practical. Right? I can do that, but even that tangible, visible doing, underneath that, there is a more fundamental law at work, and it's what he calls the law of faith. He goes on to say in verse 29 that God isn't just the God of the Jews. He's also the God of the Gentiles, meaning he's the God of everyone. 
He doesn't just justify the circumcised, but he also justifies the uncircumcised. That is, everyone. And then verse 31, do we then nullify the law through faith? May never be on the contrary. We establish the law. That is through faith. Faith establishes the law. Meaning, meaning there's this visible world that we live in. And we operate according to the laws of this world. But even as we're operating under these visible, tangible laws, our hope in the keeping or operating of these laws is for another world that we cannot see. C.S. Lewis, uh, for me, is the person to quote when it comes to this kind of truth. He begins in one of his writings, he says this, he says, when a man longs for bread, it doesn't prove that man is going to get bread, but it is evidence that man was made to eat, that hunger is a reality. And then somewhere deep, beyond his stomach, in his heart, he knows, I have a creator and I was made to eat. I don't know that I'm going to get food, but I know by design I'm supposed to eat. So that desire to eat itself gives to the man evidence of some existential truth about hunger, about the fact of what it means to be human that he's supposed to eat. And he goes on to further unpack this truth, and he says, why are you constantly surprised by time? If you are made to live in time, and you are made by time, you're a function of time and space, why are you so uncomfortable in this world? Why do you say things like, oh, how time flies? I can't believe how quickly the time has passed. Why is this taking so long? Why would you be aware of time at all? Fish don't say, C.S. Lewis says, my goodness, it's so wet. (laughs) They are not aware of water. And if they were, it would be evidence that they were not meant to always be in water. That there is this thing called dryness that they were made for. And they're uncomfortable with water. It just makes their scales feel all funny. Why, if you are the product of a material universe, are you so uncomfortable? Why, when my little girls have experienced no trauma, why do they long for a better universe than the one they were born into? Why? And the writer of Hebrews says, because that's proof that there is another world. Why would you long for it? My life has been nothing but disappointment after disappointment. Not in some cynical way, but I realize everything is just an arrow. It's like you think you would arrive already, but you don't. You get there, and all it is is just another big arrow pointing to another place. I'm one of those guys that wanted to get married when I was like, Six years old. I don't know why. I've always wanted to get married. I worked towards marriage my whole life. And you know Susie is about as great as it gets. 
I actually consciously thank God for Susie every single day. She's, ama- she's not, not human to me in many ways. And yet she's an arrow pointing to a person beyond herself that's even more perfect. Who could that be? The fact that Susie's an arrow points to something. What job, how much money, what home, what partner, what kind of love will finally satisfy the deepest longings of your heart? Will all of your idealism and hopes and dreams vanish one day? We all have these if-only thoughts, don't we? If only this, if only that. And then we get there and we realize, oh my goodness, it's just another arrow. But yet we fall for it each time. There's a universality to the law of faith. It pervades even the law of works. Even in the working of the law, we are hoping for things beyond the promise of the law. For example, if I do this, then I am good enough. I will do this. I will keep all of these rules. And then you do. And then you get the result that it promised. You're not guilty. And then what? You realize, oh, I'm actually longing for more than just innocence. I'm longing for unconditional love. I didn't know that. Now I do. Because I've kept the law and it didn't do it. What is faith about? Faith is about this other world beyond the one that we can see. This material world is not it. This world of cause and effect is not it. None of us have arrived yet. And yet we're engaged constantly in the survival arrival thinking. And we keep being surprised. But the surprise itself is evidence. It is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The second key fact about, that, about um, this other world is God. The key fact about that other world is God. Verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. Do you realize that's one of the best ways to begin a paragraph? Because it just describes God in a nutshell. If you stand before God, where is the boasting? Why is there no boasting? Because God doesn't care what you've accomplished. That's irrelevant to him. And what that means is that there is this being at the center of this other world that we long for. And the dynamic that he insists on having with us is one of grace. And it excludes boasting. It's saying that God is able, so we don't have to be able. It means that he is powerful, that he is good, and that he is gracious. You put all of these descriptors together and you say, where is boasting? The boasting is gone. Well, why? Because God is gracious. Because he is good and he is able. You're standing before him. He was able to bring you into this world. 
and you have nothing to boast about. You are not going to get to this other world and pat yourself on the back and say, Peter, you did a good job. Peter, you really helped God. You really did your part. You did your part well. There's none of that. Faith requires trusting in God and the world over there against some other groups and uh, uh, existing evidence that would point otherwise. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says this, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Let me summarize for us here. It's getting elusive for me again. The fact that I have faith is evidence to me that there is this other world. That I'm made for that other world. Because I'm uncomfortable in this present one. I'm surprised constantly by this world. Right? And then Hebrews 11.6 says, at the center of that world is God. He created us and that world. And he made us for that other world. And central to that world is God. And the thing we have to believe about him is that he exists. And not only that, but that he rewards those who seek him. Meaning he is gracious. He's responsive. He's powerful and he's able. Now that for me is a tall order. It's hard for me to believe that he exists all the time. I have regular moments when I'm lying in bed, standing at my desk, or relating to my kids, or trying to solve some problem in life. And I don't know if God is really there. Am I on my own? Does he even know what's going on? Does he care? If I pray, will it matter? If I don't, will it matter? And do I believe that if I seek him, that he's going to respond to me? That this God is not just transcendent, that he's far, but he's imminent, he's close, and he's near, and he knows my name, that my world and the stupid, dumb little details of my life, they matter to him? Does he not get bored with my life? You know, there's conversations I have all day, and sometimes I get in a conversation where people are telling me about the mundane details of their day. Like, it's so significant to them. It matters to them. But I just want out. That's really boring. That, do I believe in a God that's not bored by the minutia of my life? That's really hard for me to believe. Check this out. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 and following. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. These are people, saints of old. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, 
and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And what this passage is saying, I think, is this. So you believe, on the basis of the fact that you have faith, that this other world exists, a heavenly one. Right? And you believe that God exists, that God is at the center of that other world, and that he created you and that other world. You believe that. That's what you believe. And if you live that way, it will be evident in your life that you are seeking that other world and you're not putting all your eggs into the basket of this material world. And then if you live that way, God is pleased and he is honored and he rewards that kind of faith by making sure you get there. It is a strange topic for me to be preaching about heaven. Because it's it's so cliche. You know, when I die, I want to go to heaven. That's why I believe in Jesus. That's what I was taught. So that I don't go to hell. So I go to heaven. But here, that's what this passage is talking about. There's this other world that you and I were made for. Where you are loved in ways that are beyond even your own idealistic dreams, that you are known and valued and seen and accepted and embraced, where every single hair on your head is counted, where all the tears you've ever shed are wiped away, where you have answers to every question you've ever had about life and beyond, where your heart is so overwhelmed with beauty all around you, that you're going to be helplessly singing the praises of the creator of that beauty for all of eternity. And you're raptured with thoughts and feelings and a state of existence that you you can't fathom right now. I was reading this week about the mantis shrimp Do you know the mantis shrimp, which is a kind of shrimp? They have the best vision on planet Earth. They see billions of more colors than you and I do. They can see beyond the visible spectrum. They can see infrared and other spectrums I don't even know about. And I can't imagine what the world looks like to the mantis shrimp. Now, that was helpful for me. Think about this. The world that you're able to perceive right now as somebody who's trichromatic, you only can see three colors at best, right? And like a quarter of men, males, are dichromatic. They only see two colors. Shrimp live in a more colorful world than we do. Shrimp 
your reality is really pale in comparison to the shrimp that I had last night at the wedding that I did. There is another world out there. We are not meant to just perceive these colors only. And you trust God, you believe in God. He is working for this city. Third fact Jesus is the ultimate evidence of God and that other world. I feel overly conscious about the fact that life is not fair. You know, every, every time I pray for the meal in front of me, I think about other people who don't have that kind of food to eat. And they're praying to the same God. Yesterday at the wedding, at the, um, you know, Marshall Brown in our church, his uh, brother was getting married. And uh, one of the bridesmaids got stung by a bee. And we, I was praying for that finger not to swell up. So it wouldn't be a distraction to her as she was performing her maid of honor duties. Right? And at the same time, I was aware that there's somebody on the other side of the world whose whole arms have been amputated. I was just thinking about that as I was praying for her little bee sting. Life is not fair. At the very moment that you are thanking God for some way, you know, there's this imminent God who's breaking into your little world and he's answering some little prayer that you have. And there's somebody else who's praying a very similar prayer. And God doesn't even know they exist as far as their experience of God is concerned. How do you reconcile that? How do you celebrate? How do you thank God? How do you say, God is provider because look at my life. I fear having testimonies of people love from here. I've thought about doing it many, many times. But I fear that I once, have, I once was blind, but now I see story. Because there's all these other blind people who are still waiting to see. Where is God in their life? I don't know how to reconcile that. I don't even know how to do Christian celebration. The world seems so unfair. And then there is this story that is helpful for me. Daniel chapter 3 verse 17 This is a story of Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, there's these four uh, Hebrew boys, Hebrew um, young men. And they were um, uh, kidnapped and brought into uh, the king's presence. And they were supposed to serve the king. And the king set up an idol and said, we want you to bow down before this idol. And the three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to do that. The king said, if you don't do it, I'm going to throw you into the blazing furnace, and you're going to die. And so go ahead and bow down, and we'll be done with that. They said, no. And this is what they say. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Right? That's faith. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, this is great that they could have such faith. Right? They trust their God. They believe in that other world. They're saying, this country is not my, my country. 
I'm waiting for a better country, and he's preparing that place for me. And I will put my trust in that God, and he will save us. That's great. Celebrate that. But here's my problem. Why does the furnace exist in the first place? Here's here's a more direct question. How many others have been burned in that furnace before these three came along? A lot. A lot. In fact, there were guards who had no choice but to obey the king. That was their job. And they got burned up and they died while they were putting these three into the oven. How was life fair for them? Where is God for them? And then the king didn't destroy this furnace after he pulled these three out. But the oven persisted. And others were thrown into the fire, I'm sure. Where is God in all of this? How am I to have faith in this kind of world? And if there is another world, and if God is the center of that world, and he is good, and he is able, and he is gracious, where is he for other people? Or maybe you're that other people. Where is God in your life? Why doesn't God listen to you? What will you do with it? Story goes on, Daniel chapter 3, verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. So the king goes on, and he pulls the three out, but the fourth stays in the furnace. For me, this is the only answer that I can come up with to the question of suffering and evil in this world, even though this world is supposed to point to that other world where God is at the center, and he is good, able, and gracious. If God is at the center of that world, and he is good, able, and gracious, why does this world look like this for so many? And the only answer I have is this fourth person, this person that that not only looked like a son of the gods, but is the son of God, that is Jesus Christ, that he would be the one in the fiery furnace with me. And when I am rescued, he remains in there for those who do not get to come out of the furnace. That he is there in my stead. And he, in response to our suffering, suffers. This is the only answer that I have. This is the only way I know that God is actually trustworthy. Because he himself suffered. If God would give the world his son to suffer and to die, then he must be trustworthy then he must love me. 
He's shown it. He's demonstrated. He's proven it. And he's made a way to rescue me from the evil that I'm surrounded by. Jesus is ultimately the only evidence that I personally can think of that God is good, he is able and gracious, that there is another world. That in the face of overwhelming, heart-wrenching, mind-bending evidence, that maybe there isn't another world. Maybe God isn't at the center of it. That actually there is another world. Because Jesus himself said, I go to prepare a place for you. I am making a way for you. And when I die and I'm lifted up, I will send you the very same spirit that raised me from the dead is going to be in your life. And that's a deposit or a guarantee that God's going to bring you into that other world to be in his presence. I am proof of that. The way I'm going to prove it is by God raising me from the dead. And if God raises me from the dead, then you will know that everything I have said about God is true, that he exists, and that he is able, and that he is gracious. That's the whole deal. I have two stories, and then three application points. And uh, stories are really helpful for me because... Uh, the whole faith thing is so elusive to me. Two kind of mundane stories, but that are very, very real for me with, in this area of faith. And hopefully you can substitute your own details to help the uh, stories illustrate your faith. The first one, uh, I came home one day this past week, uh, just kind of spent emotionally from the day. I just didn't have... Anything left, you feel like that, you know what that's like. And uh, I had no patience. I actually had no desire to go home because I knew that as soon as I walk in those front doors, I'm going to be uh, attacked uh, by, by all these little creatures, these little gremlins in my life, uh, and the dog. And they all want to hug and tell me about their day and show me pictures and, you know, just... You know, I have to be friend and counselor and judge all at the same time. So I didn't want to come home. I wanted to stay at the office a couple hours, watch a movie, surf the web, relax a little bit. But I had to go home, right? So I go home, and my immediate temptation, as soon as I saw sort of the rush of critters, I just wanted to be mad at them. I just wanted to be impatient. I wanted to just kind of, I had all these feelings, my perspective and my mood. I wanted to bring to bear on that household. That's what I wanted to do. I just had an emotional need to have it my way. Right? You relate to that? But then something happened, and uh, I began to die to my mood and my perspective, and I began to embrace their perspective. They have already been home for three hours, right? And they've been waiting for me to come home. And they've been mentally listing out things they wanted to tell me. And they wanted to tell me before the other ones got to tell me their list. So it's this race. I began to understand this, right? And there's my wife standing behind them all, all smiling and happy to see me. And sometimes that smile is irritating. Because why is she so happy? 
Why doesn't she get a job where she can be tired from? Why doesn't she finally contribute to the... Just kidding. <laughs> She's a domestic engineer. <clears throat> but I was able to take on their perspective. But it required me to take a faith step to die to my perspective and my mood. I just had to push my stuff aside and embrace what they needed and wanted from dad. And for me to do that, I had to die to myself. And here are some of the steps that I had to take internally to get there. One, I had to believe that God is working in other people's lives. You ever look at your spouse or somebody in your life, a family member or some friend, and just decide there's no hope for them? Like, you just believe this. You just think, man, what's wrong with them? I think that's one of the most dangerous things we can do to each other is to believe that God isn't going to change somebody, that they're always going to be that way. I had to believe at that moment that God is at work in all of these little faces. Like they deserve, they had worth, they had value, like their feelings mattered because somebody in the universe cares for them and like created them, like gave them dignity and these things that are just in my way at the moment. I had to honor that the presence of God and the love of God in their life, right? The image of God in which they're made. So that's one. The second thing I had to do internally was to realize that I don't have to gain from every moment. Do you know how hard it is to not have to gain at every moment? Now, some of you are way better at this than I am, but I'm just sort of a shyster. Like, I'm not an opportunist, like, if I'm talking to you, I want to gain from that moment. I don't want to just be spent listening to you so that you can feel good. I want to gain something. I want that moment to be productive and efficient and life-giving and enjoyable. Is that too much to ask? Why should I be bored by the details of your life? To no gain for me. But I was, I, and I just pushed that aside. I said, it doesn't matter what I get out of this interaction. It doesn't matter what I feel right now. I'm going to love on these kids because they, they need to be loved on. They deserve to be loved on. The creator of the universe loves them. And who am I to not love them? And so I was able to acknowledge that I don't have to gain from that interaction. And that required a step of faith for me. And then... Related to that, but different altogether, I had to realize that in God's economy, there's no, no such thing as eternal loss. That ultimately there's redemption for everything. And that kind of economy, you know, that track playing in the back of my mind allowed me to embrace the moment for what it is. That you can't get me. Ultimately, God gets all of us. And that just takes the pressure off of that moment. 
That's the first story. The second story is this. Um, I, uh, I'm a pastor. I've been in ministry for 17 years now. For the first 12 years, I was a church planter. And what that means uh, is that I was starting churches. And so for me, starting things comes naturally. And then I left that whole pastoring, starting world. And then I worked for the denomination, mostly like a consultant. And I traveled, and it was kind of a sexier job. You know, it was fun. There was some allure to it. And there was the perception that it was this job. It, it, it looked like a promotion. Right? And so I was doing that. But a couple of years ago, I started getting this feeling like I'm supposed to get, go back into the pastoral ministry. It's the front lines is what I would call, refer to it in my mind. And the question started looming. And this is what the search committee really wanted to know. You are a serial starter. And then you spend four years helping other people start churches. And then what makes you think you can come and be the pastor of an established organization, which you've never done before, and not just start, but to stay? So this is the conflict for me, is starting versus staying. I know how to start. That doesn't require any faith for me. But to stay requires faith. I was talking to my spiritual director about uh, this topic and this uh, uh, dilemma for me. And, uh, you know, it was a year for me last year. There was kind of a symbolic evaluation of my uh, being here. And I was talking to her, and she said, Peter, you, ha- you risk nothing when you start. You're a good starter. But for you, the point of discipleship, where the rubber meets the road for you and God, is staying. And we listed out some of the questions that I was really wrestling with in this point of faith for me, for me to learn how to stay. Here's here's some of the questions. Is God in this with me? Does he go before me? Is he in me? And is he underneath me to support me in this? Another question that I ask for me is this. Will this church take care of me and my family? You know, when you are a starter, you're more or less a benevolent dictator, and I was sometimes benevolent. But part of it was I got to just take care of myself. I had a lot more control. But here there's established systems and people and positions, and they're insisting on making those decisions for me and my family. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Can I trust the systems? Can I trust people? It's a huge trust issue that's surfacing, right? Another question for me Will I be effective in this established role? Can I get the job done and get the job done for the long haul? I've never done it before. The longest I've ever stayed is four and a half years. Can I do that? That's a question I'm legitimately asking and I should ask and I have asked, but it's a faith question for me. And then the final question for me is, can I be happy doing that? Maybe I can do that, but I'm going to be miserable. 
Will I find joy in the journey here? This is just me sharing. And it's been a really great process for me to go through, to be reaffirmed of my call here with you all. It's great for, my, for me to hear from my spiritual director, Peter, this is discipleship for you. Forget about all the spiritual stuff you try to do. This is spiritual. This is where God is working in your life. So what does faith mean for you? How do you come to believe that God exists and that if you seek him, he rewards you? Primarily by preparing you for that other world that you were originally created for, that you long for, whether you choose to or not. Three application points. The first is baptism. You see this um, gigantic galvanized tank in front of me here? Before you, this is a, a watering trough um, that Kevin borrowed uh, Jeff's truck to go get from somewhere where they sell these kind of things, I guess. And um, this is what we're going to use for baptism on the 22nd. Uh, here, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be baptizing people in both services. And you know what baptism is? Baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, and it literally just means to immerse or to submerge. And the idea is that there's, there's this evidence, and then there's this other evidence, and they're contradicting each other. But you're going to die to one set of evidence in order to embrace the other set of evidence. So you're going to die to yourself as Christ died. You're going to identify with Jesus on the cross. And then just as Jesus was raised from the dead, you're going to be raised anew in new life with him so that you can live a life of faith, trusting in God, trusting, believing that God exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Right? So that's baptism. And it's a public declaration of the inward reality of the faith work that God has been doing in your life. So we invite as many people as possible to partake in that. So let me say again, if you are interested in publicly declaring faith and the work of faith in your life, come talk to Pastor Julie here. All the information is in the bulletin. She's the, our coordinator for those efforts. We'll be baptizing people in both services. Okay? That's the first application point. Second is the Sabbath. Sabbath is the Hebrew word, which literally means to cease or to stop. And the meaning behind that is, you were created by God in his image. And Jesus died for you to redeem that image. There is that ideal self that you long to be, it doesn't matter how old you are. You never quite find peace with yourself. That's the image of God in you. You want to and you need to. You're supposed to be that person. Because God made you to be that person. Right? And your value comes from the fact that God made that person originally. 
And the self that you're living out of now, it's a mixed bag. There's this, these false selves and false layers to you. But there's this true core image. And that's where you derive your value from. The image of God in you. Your value doesn't come from your productivity or usefulness. You don't exist as a valuable human being because the government decides that you have inalienable human rights. But it's because you're made in the image of God. And on the Sabbath, when we cease from doing work, we are reminded that's where the value comes from. And so one day a week, scriptures tell us to stop working altogether, to cease from productivity. So that you could be reminded on a weekly basis that God loves you apart from your value through works. And so each week I try to practice that. You could extend that beyond to vacations or to seasons where you are going to embrace God's love for you apart from your utilitarian value. Third is confession. The word confess means to with say or to say with. It means that you're going to agree with God and his perspective for you. And so when you confess to God, you're saying, God, I agree with what you're saying about me. I did wrong, I will say that. I need help, I will say that. And so I want to invite you as a third application point to confess to each other, to speak God's perspective about yourself to other people. Don't just rely on your perspective, your angle, but say with God. Confess. I'm sorry. I'm guilty. I did wrong. Baptism, Sabbath, confession. Three very practical ways to practice our faith. I know that faith is still elusive and there's a lot more that can be said about faith. But here's these three things. One, the fact of faith is evidence that there is another world. The fact that you have faith. Second, God is at the center of that other world. And Jesus is the ultimate evidence of the existence of God and that other world. Would you pray with me? God, the idea of God and that other world is um, kind of hit or miss, depending. But the fact that we have hopes, the fact that we have dreams and longings for a better world, for a better self, God, that is true. That's real. We live in that reality every day. We see the colors, but we long to see more. And you tell us today that that fact alone is pointing us to that other world. Help us to believe, God, that you are at the center of that world and to ultimately show us that you love us, that you are powerful, you are able, you're gracious. You gave to us your son. Give us faith. We do believe, but help our unbelief. God, we lift up ourselves, our hearts, our lives to you. 
these lives that we live by faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.